I don't know if you've ever seen a baby being born, but wow. What a bizarre way to enter the world, and what a bizarre way to save it. Our narrative opens on a cold winter's night in a little town called Bethlehem, where a baby was being born. For generations, God's people wondered, when will God send a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior? And on that night, God said, now. He did so through the birth of a baby boy by a virgin named Mary and a reluctant carpenter named Joseph. Can you imagine the questions he would have heard? Hey, Joseph, are you the father? Uh, it's complicated and miraculous. This story is a great reminder that we are prone to miss the miracle. Our minds are as crowded as the inn was that night. Missing the miracle of Christmas is a tradition that dates back to that clueless innkeeper. We scurry, we shop, we spend, and we forget the point. When Jesus was born in that dirty stable, few recognized his worth. He was mostly ignored, a lower-class citizen born to an unwed teenager. God could have brought him to earth with a thunderous arrival, full of pomp and circumstance. God could have delivered Jesus in the form of a king, an emperor, a warrior. They would have surely noticed that. But that was his point. He wants us to hear the story yet again and realize we have to make the effort to notice Jesus. We have to pay attention. We have to see the world through compassionate eyes that see his word. Because when you begin to see the miracle of Jesus, you can see the miracle in others. Well, in our new series, The Holiday Survival Guide, we're looking at not just having a to-do list this holiday season, but a to-be list. We began last week looking at what it means to be more thankful. Today I want to talk about a really unique aspect of Christmas, which is the aspect of being compassionate or empathetic. The story of this child that comes to earth, the book of Hebrews tells us, that we have a God or a high priest who's able to sympathize with us, empathize with us. God has literally walked in our shoes. He's felt the betrayal and the sting. He's felt the difficulty of, of being in a world with sickness and pain and, and, and friction and dysfunction. And the same God who had compassion on us to come near to us is the same God who wants us to be compassionate and come near toward others. And why would we do that? Well, every family, every marriage... Every conflict that you see in, in an organization, in a department, or in a company, or in a neighborhood comes down to how we deal with conflict. And usually what happens is when, when I'm in conflict, maybe when you're in conflict, no one has to show me where I'm right. It comes natural. I know where I'm right. It's hard to see where the other person might be right, where they might have a good point. But in conflict, it's easy to see where I'm right. The second thing in conflict is it's very easy to forget that I only see a very small piece of a larger story. How I came across, how that might have been perceived, how that decision might have had unintended consequences. 
But because I know I'm right, given, and because I don't know that I only have a small piece of the puzzle, I then become very judgmental and very self-righteous because I weigh how right I am against how right you are. How wrong you are from how wrong I am. And as I weigh this, this situation, my limited view of conflict, my limited view of your point of view, brings me to the conclusion that I am right and getting righter all the time, and that you're wrong and getting wronger all the time. Because of a lack of empathy and compassion toward the other person's point of view. And every once in a while, we reflect to see it. Other times, circumstances come crashing into our lives that make us see it. My son came home from college a few months ago, and when he came in, I could tell he was upset. So what's going on? He said, I cannot believe what the teacher did to humiliate me today. I said, what happened? He said, he took my paper off the front, because I sit toward the front. He holds it up for the whole class and goes, look at this writing. The teacher said, I have a 34-year-old son with Down syndrome who writes better than Hovind here. He then went and scribbled on the board and said, look, scribble, scribble, I'm writing like Hovind. My son was hurt. My son was angry. So I listened. I was empathetic. And I said, you know, do you want to go through the proper steps to, to hold this guy to account? He says, I do. I said, well, I'm proud of you for holding your temper, for being, you know, treated so poorly. So I helped him walk through the process, and one of the things we communicated, besides it was totally inappropriate, was that my son has an IEP, and part of that is for his fine motor skills. He doesn't write real well, and so part of one of his accommodations is related to writing. That information was passed on to this teacher, and some way I hope was strong. And the teacher apologized at the next uh, class and said, if I only knew you had this, this issue, this accommodation, I wouldn't have done what I did. To which you say... It's a little bit of compassion, a little bit of empathy, but not a lot. That apology came from circumstances being forced into his life rather than thinking, you know, maybe before I mock someone, maybe before I jump the gun and judge somebody, I should think about it from their perspective. There's a social researcher, her name is uh, Breen Brown. She researches empathy and the power of empathy to transform relationships. As a scientist, she became increasingly committed to being vulnerable in her own life and compassionate in her own life as she studied the scientific evidence for empathy and compassion. She says this, empathy and shame are on the opposite ends of a continuum. Shaming somebody, judging someone is the opposite of empathizing or being compassionate. If you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, don't tell anybody about your issue. Silence and judgment. If you put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. And she would say, whether you deal with guilt or shame or difficulty in relationships, one of the issues is we've got to learn to be more empathetic so we can see others' point of view. For example, let's take someone like Megan Kelly. She had a book that came out called uh, settle, Don't Settle for More or Don't Settle for Less. There, Settle for More. And so I don't know what you feel about Megan Kelly, but you probably have some perceptions. Oh, must be nice, silver spoon in her mouth. She's got, you know, interview whoever she wants. Life must be easy, top show. You've got a perceived perception of her, how she comes across, her lawyer background, whatever it is. 
you've got a piece of the story that we make judgments based on, that conflict comes from. And she tells a story about when she was in sixth grade, I believe. She invited all of her friends to come to her house. It came time for the party. No one had arrived yet. About five minutes after the time for the party, and the phone rings. Her mom was going to get it, but Megan picked up the phone. It was one of her friends supposed to come to the party. Her friend said, are you wondering where all your friends are? Yeah, where is everybody? On the other line, that friend held up the phone and she heard a, a crowd of voices yell out, We're over here! We're not coming! Click. Mom and Dad said, Hey, who's on the phone, Megan? Nobody. It was the wrong number. She talked about walking out into the backyard by herself in that cold I think it was a December afternoon and just crying into her hands. Now, whatever your opinion of Megan was, that piece of the story gives a little more empathy toward why she might be a fighter, to why she might be where she is and, and who she is today. And that's why compassion is about hearing the other side of the story. It's about weighing what I know with what I now know now and bringing that into the equation because compassion has a cost. Letting somebody off the hook has a cost. Trying to see it from somebody else's view has a cost. Forgiveness has a cost. And in every relationship dilemma, you're going to be weighing some things. And often, what we're going to see today in this relational conflict in the Bible, is we have two relatives, Lot and Abram, and they're going to weigh, in their relational conflict, what weighs more, a bag full of money or a bag full of harmony? And this dilemma will determine their friendship, their business, and their career. Will they see it from the other person's point of view? Let's look at Abraham. We learn a lot about Abram. Abraham is the father of three faiths, uh, Jewish faith, Christian faith, and uh, Islam. So very famous in, uh, in religious circles. And the Bible describes Abram as a man who is very, very affluent, very, very rich, he has lots and lots of livestock. He's got a huge company, lots of silver, lots of gold. Abraham is doing fine, thank you very much. And he has built a company, built a business, and built a family legacy that is incredibly, incredibly affluent. And he has a family member, his nephew named Lot, who also had flocks and also had herds and tents. However, as the company was growing, and as his his nephew Lot's company is growing, the land can't sustain the success of the business. So much so that the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together. For their possessions were so great, they could not dwell together. And so the good news is success all around. The good news is luxury all around. The bad news is not enough resources to make both these companies work in the same proximity. We have family conflict. We have business conflict. We have resource conflict. And it says there was strife between them. Strife between the family members. Strife between the company. How will this family survive this conflict? What's amazing about the Bible, even compare Abraham in the Bible versus Abraham in the Quran. Very different stories. In the Bible, Abraham makes mistakes. He lies. He's dysfunctional. And God works in his dysfunction. You read the book of uh, Quran, and Abraham does everything right. If you remember, I have a friend of mine who's a Muslim scholar up here, and we've talked about that. He said, I don't understand. How can your Bible describe the father of faith as somebody who makes mistakes? 
The Quran says Abraham is a man we, we imitate because he did everything right. Because the Bible is not about us doing good things as much as it is about God helping us who are dysfunctional. Rescuing us, saving us from our conflict, saving us from our, self, our short-sightedness, saving us from our, our selfishness. And what's amazing about the Bible is it doesn't describe this sort of idyllic holiday season, this idyllic everything is perfect. It talks about real conflict, real dysfunction, and how to work in that. And Abraham's going to have to make a decision. Is he going to weigh harmony with his company, harmony with his brother, as weighing more than the cost of making some decisions? Or will he weigh getting every last ounce out of the situation, even if it causes more strife? And isn't that more what the holidays are about? You just came out of the holidays. There were wonderful moments. There were great moments. There was also awkward moments. And I can't believe he said that. I can't believe she said that that way moments, right? There was strife. And the strife often came not from bad stuff, sometimes from success. How you see, how you think things should work. I think no one describes family better than Seinfeld, right? Seinfeld episode. You remember that Seinfeld episode that described the great season of Christmas? Only one family decided to create their own new holiday to express more accurately what the holidays were all about. In case you didn't see the episode, here's a quick clip. What? Nothing is a cup. Dear son, happy Festivus? Festivus? It's nothing. It's nothing. When George was growing up, his father did all the commercial and religious aspects of Christmas, so he made up his own holiday. Oh. Happy Festivus. When George was growing up, his father... It's nothing. It's a stupid holiday my father invented. It it, it doesn't exist. Happy Festivus, Georgie. A new holiday was born. A Festivus for the rest of us. At the Festivus dinner, you gather your family around and tell them all the ways they have disappointed you over the past year. And is there a tree? No, instead there's a pole. Requires no decoration. I find tinsel distracting. I can't read it. I need my glasses. You don't need glasses. You're just weak. You're weak. Leave him alone! I find your belief system fascinating. Welcome, newcomers. (laughs) The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. You, Kruger, my son tells me your company stinks. Oh, God. Why? Right, we'll get yours in a minute. Kruger, you couldn't smooth a silk sheet if you had a hot date with a babe. I lost my train of thought. So here's what you have going on a lot in, in Abraham's family. You have this conflict. You have this airing of grievances. This isn't working out together. Reminds me, it's almost like a tug of war going on between the two families, between the two business, between the two business departments. I, uh, my dad and I went to Sturgis several years ago on a motorcycle trip, and on the way we stopped uh, in a little town in Iowa, the place where the TV show American Pickers is, is um, filmed. So we got to stop in the actual shop, got to see a few of the, the pieces, parts on a few of the shows. And while we were there, I looked just down the road, maybe 500 yards at most, and there was a carnival set up. I said, what's going on there? They said, oh, it's the annual Tug Fest. Go on? Well, every year, this little town in Iowa puts a barge rope across the Mississippi because there's another little town in Illinois on the other side. 
and after the games and after the festivities, they get the toughest guys from Illinois' little town and the toughest guys from the Iowa little town, and they have an across-the-Mississippi tug-of-war at our tug-fest. And whichever town can pull the, the, the rope and the, the marker they have on the rope to their side of the river wins that year. And sure enough, every year there is this massive tug-of-war between towns, tug-of-war across the river to see who will win the annual tug-fest. And that's what's going on between Lot and Abram, between Lot's family and Abraham's families. People got to take sides, Lot's employees and his employees. And in that, Abraham makes a decision. What's he going to weigh? There's a lot at stake. A lot of money at stake, a lot of future at stake. A lot of relationships at stake. Will he weigh the bag full of money or the bag full of harmony? Which will weigh more? We get two aspects, two, I think, profound principles that he uses in making this decision. The number one is it shows that Abraham realizes that family conflict always affects more than the two of you. And here's always the lie we tell ourselves. Well, you know, I may be mad at uncle such and such. I may be mad at my brother, but it's only between the two of us. Right. Well, the rest of us are having to tiptoe around the dinner table and not talk about such and such, not taking an opinion. It never affects just two of you, right? Conflict always is not between you and that person. It affects everyone. And Abraham realized this. Abraham said, please, let there be no strife between you and me. But he also realized it was impacting and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. How we handle this, how we approach this, doesn't just affect you and me. It affects our companies, our departments, our division. There's a lot at stake here. There's a lot of relationships at stake here. And immediately you see already Abram having the lens of compassion. He's not just thinking about where he's been wronged or right. He's thinking about the whole view. He's trying to get a big piece of the puzzle. Who does this decision impact? How might they see it? Your herdsman. How might my herdsman see it? He takes this very holistic approach to it. The second thing he's able to do in a pretty amazing way, especially with a man who's worked so hard to be so affluent, is he weighs the relationship more important than riches. He realizes that their relationship as uncle and nephew is even more important than whatever he might give up in this deal. Look what he says. He starts off by saying, before we negotiate, let's remember we are brethren. Let's remember we're in a relationship. Let's not forget that all the things are important, herds are important, gold is important, silver is important, without a doubt. But let's make sure as we approach this, our relationship is more important, it's weighed more, the harmony of this is weighed more than whatever negotiation we have. Please, he says, in light of that, is not the whole land before you. So what he does is he comes to a section, they stand up on this section, and they look out. And they say, there's your herdsman, here's our herdsman, here's all the land that we look upon. I'll let you go first. Now, he could have said, listen, I'm older, I go first. Respect your elders for crying out loud. He could have said, by the way, you wouldn't have got here if I hadn't brought you with. You owe me, I'll go first. If anyone had a reason to go first, it would have been Abram. But he says, I'm going to let you pick from where we can see all the land, you pick one half, and I'll take the other half. You go first. Please, let's separate 
This is a good time in our, in our company. It's a good time in our family to, to, to divide. And you have some boundaries for where you're at. I'll have some boundaries where I'm at. If you choose the left side, I will choose to go to the right. If you choose the right side, I'll go to the left. Now, as we're going to find out, there was a side that looked a lot better and looked a lot less. But Abraham is able to say, whatever happens, I know that I built this company when I had a crummy area of land. I'm not going to weigh, I need to get everything out of this that I earned. I'm going to weigh that harmony in the company, harmony in the family is more important than giving every last nickel out of the situation. I went to grad school, I've got uh, 20 years ago now. We were at grad school and we had an uh, ethics class. We had a, uh, a lawyer there, we had a theologian there, and we were discussing all kinds of complex ethical dilemmas and how to approach them. And as we were walking through different dilemmas together, the lawyer had a phrase he kept using. He said, that the thing you've got to ask yourself in a situation like this, when you're weighing X value against Y value, is, is the game worth the candle? And he'd go on. He'd say, yeah, well, Chad, I'd ask a question. Why did you choose to weigh that versus this? Well, you've got to ask yourself, is the game worth the candle? So after about two hours of this, I said, I'm sorry, maybe I'm the only one. Could you tell me about the etymology of that word? Like, where did that phrase, is the game worth the candle, come from? I have no idea what it means, and you keep answering my questions with that. He said, oh, sorry. He said, back in, like, you know, Abraham Lincoln days, before there was electricity, if you wanted to play a, a game at night, say checkers or chess, you had a decision to make. You would go to your supply closet. You only had a certain amount of candles. And so you had to ask yourself, is this game worth the candle? We could play chess for the next two hours, but by the time we're done, we're going to be down one candle in case of emergency. So you would have to always assess, is what I'm going to do here, the game, the connection, worth one candle? Is the game worth the candle? That metaphor stuck with me because often I think when we come to a family dilemma or family conflict or apologizing or seeing another person's perspective, we say, oh, it's so worth it. It's so worth it to be right. It's so worth it to prove I'm right. It's so worth it to put them in their place. I would just ask you, is the game worth the candle? How it's infecting everybody in your family? How's it affecting everybody in your department? Is this hill you've decided to die on, this chess game you've decided to play, worth the cost to everyone else? I think if you're like me, you come into certain situations and you give yourself permission to be angry. Here's what it looks like. You probably don't do this. This will just be me. You come and you say, you know, if my mother-in-law brings up such and such, I'm going to be angry all week. So you've given yourself permission. Now, you know she's going to bring it up because she always brings it up. If they talk politics at Christmas this year, I'm going to be pouty. You don't say it out loud, but you say something. I'm going to be pouty all weekend. And you are. How's your Christmas? Bad. Why? Because somebody talked about Donald Trump. Somebody talked about Hillary Clinton. Somebody talked about whatever. So you come into a situation, you give yourself permission. If so-and-so brings up such-and-such, if so-and-so, who is always disrespectful, is disrespectful again, I have the right to be angry, to be bitter, to be unforgiving. Right? Instead of saying, listen, they're going to do what they're going to do, the game isn't worth a candle. I'm not going to give so much power to other people to control my holidays. If they're crabby... Well, they can have a crabby Christmas. I'm going to choose to be joyful. I mean, imagine walking into a party. Most parties, we walk into Christmas parties, we all walk into to social gatherings, we're always thinking, what about me? I mean, you walk into a birthday party, and it's like, you know, happy 1127. You know, it's a birthday day today. And you walk into that party, and you say to yourself, hey, how do I look? Are people looking at me? Are people seeing what I'm doing? 
And so you come into a situation saying, how is so-and-so's attitude going to affect me? How is so-and-so's disrespectful comment going to affect me? What if this Christmas, every situation, every party, every gathering we came into, we instead said, what does mom need? What's it like to have lost dad this Christmas? And yes, she might be a little crabbier than normal, a little moodier than normal. But what would it be like if I had lost my spouse after 50 years? And stop thinking about ourselves. You'd start to reframe what's it look like from their perspective. What if we began to find, like with that Megan Kelly, just a little piece of the story of our uncle, our sister-in-law, and began to give a little bit more compassion rather than judgment? Probably not going to change them, but wouldn't it change the way we react to them as we begin to weigh a little bit of compassion over a little bit of judgment? As we begin to say, maybe I want a bigger piece of the story so I can have a little bit more empathy toward where they might be coming from. What do they need versus what do I need? So that's what Abraham did. I'll contrast that with Lot. Lot, on the other hand, almost weighs it the opposite. He says, I'm going to get everything out of this land I can. I want to get every nickel. I'm going to get everything I can possibly get out of here. I'm going to weigh the bag full of money is worth far more than that bag full of harmony between our relationships and our departments and all that nonsense. You know, that's, that's how people become doormats. I'm not going to be that guy. So Lot weighs a bag full of money over a bag full of harmony, and he ends up not with joy and freedom but with discontentment. He weighed it wrong. And the Bible tells us why. Number one, he was convinced that money was capable of something it's not. Money is a great thing until we turn it into an ultimate thing. Look what he says. Lot lifted his eyes. In the Hebrew, this word is a word for worship. He looked up. He looked up to his eyes to the land and goes, whoa. And here's what it says. He lifted up his eyes. He worshipped with his eyes. And he saw all the plain of Jordan. And it was well watered everywhere. Now this is before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The author reminds us. We'll get back to that. When he saw the land, it looked like the garden of the Lord. If you don't know the story of the Bible, the Bible describes a time when God created a perfect creation. No pain, no agony, no conflict. And when he looks that day, as he stood up and he looked to the left and to the right, he goes, that place is crummy. It's the Garden of Eden over there. This is God's place. If I could have this land, all would be good. My life would be fulfilled if I had that creek. It's all I need is that creek. It's all I need is that rock. That's all I need. If I could just say that's the jerk. If you haven't never seen the movie, the jerk. He said to himself, if I could just have that land, it's capable of far more than what you think. It's not just land. It's not just a creek. It's not just grass. It is the Garden of Eden. And if I could get that, I would be happy. If I could get that, it would all be satisfied. And here's the same thing we do in conflict. If I could prove him wrong, I would finally be happy. If I could finally win that argument, he'd finally say he was wrong. If he'd finally say I was right. If I could finally get that thing or get that circumstance or get that situation, I would finally have everything I need. Rocks do not satisfy. Creeks don't satisfy. Telling somebody off, I wish it did, it just doesn't satisfy. It's not that there aren't good things, but he turned a good thing like land into an ultimate thing, the Garden of Eden. Come on. And because of that, the relational conflict in himself is he'll never be satisfied. And I can tell you, as pastors who work with families, especially at time of funerals, we see this all the time. 
Mom and dad spend their life building up an inheritance, building up trust, putting finances aside to bless their kids and their grandkids. And then the funeral comes, and it's like before you walk into a funeral, you sort of pull people aside. What do I need to know? Well, so-and-so is mad at such-and-such because of such-and-such. And they got just read the will, and they found out they wrote this piece, and only 12%. And, only 12%. and now this money that was given by parents to bless and to encourage and to create harmony. Everybody is fighting over every dime and every nickel, and there's lawsuits going back and forth, and you're like, oh, my goodness, if mom and dad were alive, they would be so grieved. Wouldn't your mom and dad say to you if you're in that situation, why in the world are you weighing an additional 2% of the company or 1% of the, of the savings account over the harmony of, of being a family? Isn't that what I wanted? Isn't that what this whole inheritance was about? But we think if we could just get that two other percent, that one other percent, then we would finally prove that we weren't whatever it is we tell ourselves. And Lot thought money was capable of something it wasn't. The second thing Lot did is, as the story goes on, Lot didn't see the trappings of his decision. That's why I said we only see a small piece of the puzzle. He said, if I had the land, all would go well. Marriage would be happy if I had that rock. The, the, The employees would get along if we had that creek. The sheep would just magically give off their fur, give off their cotton, all by themselves. We just had that land. What we didn't realize is that particular section he picked came with all kinds of temptations and all kinds of challenges. So Lot chose for himself the land of the plain of Jordan, and he journeyed east toward that area. What he didn't see is that was the area known as Sodom and Gomorrah, a place that was exceedingly evil. The book of Ezekiel tells us a place that did not care for the poor and did not care for the needy. And the same mindset he had, not being compassionate toward others, not giving toward others, not caring for others, gets exacerbated by getting into a town known for actually putting laws in place that punished you for caring for the poor. Think about that. And at the end of his life, you know what we find out? He loses his marriage. He loses his wife. He's not happy. He's not joyful. There's friction in his family. There's friction in his company. There's friction in the area he chose. It's not because one piece of land was right or wrong. It's because the value system he went into it, money over relationship, stayed with him and ended up destroying everything. I had a friend who was in the middle of a big lawsuit. It was a gigantic company and being sued by a smaller company. I'll call him David and Goliath. So I was talking to Goliath, and Goliath said, we got this lawsuit, it's really frivolous, it's really out of whack, but there's some relationships uh, at stake here. I know some people in that company, they know me, and so our lawyers had come to us and pretty much said, we can crush this thing and crush it hard. As I began to weigh the cost, and there was a, a cost to this, the cost financially to this versus, and of course, precedent and you know, all those things, we weighed all that. And my lawyer said, we can't set this up, we can't give in here, we can't compromise. I decided to compromise with David, the smaller company. I decided that the cost of harmony between our companies, harmony between our relationships was more important than a little bit of money that was at stake here. I'm like, that's not a little bit of money. That's... And I was amazed that somebody in this day and age, not Lot and Abraham, must be nice back then, could still weigh that same value system to say relational harmony is weighed. Precedent's important. All these other things are important, but I'm going to weigh relational harmony in this lawsuit even over these other issues. It's powerful. Now let's fast forward. How'd it work out? How'd it work out for Abraham? How did it work out for Lot? 
Here's what's amazing. God appears to Abraham after he lets Lot go first, after he gives up the first shot at it, after he gives up his rights to be older and rights to be first and his right to, to demand. And it's after he'd made this decision that God appears to him. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, God says, lift your eyes up now. And I want to tell you, I want to do amazing things with this new land with you. Lift up your eyes now after you've made the decision and I'm going to work with you and I'm going to take an already great company and make it even better. You're going to be free from bitterness. There's going to be friction that's not there the way it was before. I'm going to honor your sacrifice, honor your forgiveness, honor the way you went about this. To which if you're Abraham, you're saying, why didn't you tell me that 10 minutes ago? This would have been a much easier decision if you'd said, hey, by the way, if you let him have the good side, it's, it's, uh, you know, party city all around. I said, all right, hey, Lot, take that one, please. But often in these relational dilemmas, the blessing, the freedom comes after you make the tough choice. God steps in and says, because you have made this decision to give up your rights, the cost of sacrifice, the cost of forgiveness, I'm going to honor that in a powerful way. Look, Abraham, step up. Look, northward, eastward, westward, southward, all this land I'm going to give to you and your descendants forever. And that land today is the land we know as Israel. But until he made the decision to weigh things the way God asked him to weigh them, he didn't receive the blessing. 2012, my wife and I went on a hike through Israel. Hours it took to get to this location. There's no tourists nearby. There's no people nearby. Nobody goes out to this site except our leader. After two hours, we came to a spot, and he stopped us right here. And it is beautiful. And if you look at the different cities sited on the different corners in all directions, this is one of the few locations you can see all the places that both Lot and Abraham reference in this passage. He said, this is the place that Abraham and Lot stood together, sat together, and decided to weigh harmony over money. Maybe you and I should sit with Abraham and Lot this Christmas in the same spot. Maybe you've got a situation where you need to ask yourself, what do you have a bag full of? Is it a bag full of bitterness? A bag full of demanding your rights? A bag for because I was treated this way, I have an excuse to act such and such a way? Abraham and Lot changed the world from this spot so many years ago. Let me take a moment. Will you sit with me, with Abraham and Lot? Maybe ask God, God, what is it I can't let go of? That bag full of bitterness, that bag full of my rights, that bag full of... I cannot say, I am sorry, I was wrong. God would say, after you make that decision, I've got some pretty cool things in store for you. Some freedom for you. But you're going to have to let go of that bag. And there's going to be a cost to that, and I don't doubt that. That doesn't minimize the cost. He just said, but if you'll let go of that, if you will choose harmony 
over money. Harmony over the need to be right. Harmony over punishing them again and again, either in your mind or physically or with withdrawal, however you're doing it. Guys, you can change the canvas. You can change the landscape. You can change the topography of your family. Because right now, everyone's walking around on eggshells because of the conflict they know you've had for uh, 20 years. You could change things and be freer this Christmas. What's amazing is when we, when we came to this spot and we thought about the conversations, we thought about the moments between Abram and Lot, it was just about 100 feet away, just before we got there, is a stable. It's an old ancient stable. Stables weren't made out of wood. They were usually large caves. Where shepherds, when there was a storm, would bring their animals into a cave system. This is a very large one that we got to walk inside of, and you can see the animal dung that was in there, and you can see uh, all the, the, the remnants of shepherds who'd been there. Even to this day, it's still used by the shepherds in that area of the country. And here in a cave just like this, God had a decision to make. I want harmony with mankind. I like peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But does that weigh as much as leaving heaven? Does that weigh as much as taking a multi-dimensional being like God and becoming a, a three-dimensional human being? That's going to be painful. Does the cost of harmony with human beings, is it worth being hunted for the first couple of years of my life? Seeing my mom scorned because she had a child out of wedlock, kind of, but I'm not sure. Will it be worth being betrayed, denied, whipped? And ultimately crucified. And as God sat in heaven and looked at the landscape of his life, he chose to go to a cave. He chose to go to a dark place, a difficult place, because he had compassion toward human beings. Compassion toward you and I. And he weighed in that moment the bag full of comfort, the bag full of convenience, the bag full of money was not worth as much as the bag full of harmony and forgiveness for you and I. And that becomes the motivation. If you're having trouble letting go, God says, you can't do unto others what hasn't been done unto you. See what I did for you and then go and do the same for others. So this Christmas, this season, I want to encourage you to do two things. Number one, I want you to give. Give until you're not being controlled by money. Or give until you're not controlling other people with money. Many of us growing up with patterns that we got controlled by the people around us because of money. And the Bible says that financial giving is a way that you can work your heart to a place where you're no longer being controlled by money. If I could just have the Garden of Eden, if I could just have that job, just have that title, just have that promotion, wow, it would be the Garden of Eden. God said, no, no, it won't. That would be nice, but it won't be the Garden of Eden. So begin to give until you're not being controlled by money or you're not controlling other people with money. And secondly, this Christmas forgive. Forgive the person who doesn't deserve it. Forgive the person who's been mean and nasty. Forgive the person who's probably never going to change. Forgive until you're not being controlled by bitterness or you're not controlling other people with bitterness because you owe me because of what you did three years ago or ten years ago. You bring it up. You say, did I ever tell you the time? And everybody goes, oh, yes, 
we've, yes, we've heard the story. You're even tired of telling the story at one level. It could be like the adrenaline rush of reminding people how wronged you were. And God says, forgive this Christmas until you're not controlled by bitterness or being controlled by bitterness. That doesn't mean you don't set boundaries. I mean, that's the whole thing about Abraham was he was setting up boundaries. You're here, we're here. We'll work out better with boundaries. There was graciousness, there's compassion, but there's also truth there. There's things aren't working out the way they are. I had one of those opportunities a couple weeks ago. I had a real tough situation where just somebody who is naive to the issues related to special needs said some very offensive things about my son. And so we're having this 45-minute conversation, and I'm trying to be firm but also gracious. All right, he doesn't know what it's like. He can't appreciate how challenging this is. He doesn't realize Quinn can't control himself when. And this guy's coming at me really hard, judgmental statements, and just I'm like, oh, think about it from their perspective. So finally, this one moment in the conversation, I, I got on the phone. I said, I was on the phone. I said, listen, when you ask me to do such and such. I just got to tell you, it is incredibly offensive. I mean, I I can't even describe how offensive what you're saying is. But I'm going to choose not to be offended by your offensive comments. He said, oh. I said, I want to handle this in a neighborly way. I want to handle this in a compassionate way. I want to handle this in in a loving way. So though I could be offended, and I think I'd be very justified, I would like to instead work toward harmony what's best for everyone in the situation. And after 45 minutes, we came to a conclusion. That ultimately was best for me, it's best for Quinn, best for the situation. It's not easy. There was a huge cost to not losing my temper in that conversation. And I would have been justified. But God was saying, Chad, I want you to see other people the way I see you. See the other side of the story the way I saw your side of the story. And I think God would say the same thing to you and I. Let's weigh things properly. Can we pray together? Let's just ask God to help us this Christmas. Father, would you give us the courage to choose to let go of something we've been holding on to for a long time? More than that, would you give us the promise that you reward us for doing so in this life or the next? God, would you maybe bring to mind, if you haven't already, that situation, that person, that circumstance, that is holding us or keeping our whole family or keeping our whole company from the next level of unity, the next level of, of, of connectedness because of something that we won't let go of. Maybe you want to make a courageous prayer this morning. Just say, God, I need your example to do this. God, I don't know if I believe that you came to earth, that's where you're at. But if you did, I want to do unto others what you say you've done unto me. And if you do believe the message of Christmas, you can say the same thing, which is, God, I believe you came to earth for me to forgive. And I want to choose and do the same to others. And, Father, in that, we ask you to make us a compassionate community, an empathetic community, that we would have a to-do list this Christmas that's about doing unto others the way you've done unto us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll continue our series next week with another attribute of the Holiday Survival Guide. Thanks for being here. Mm